welcome to another episode of the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, Senior Reporter here at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. So Tim, this week you spoke with Group M's Global Head of Partnerships, Keely Taylor, and Amanda Grant, who is the Global Head of Social. Um, And I know that this announcement from Google that it will end behavioral targeting and individual profile building and its ad products happened after your conversation with them. But did you guys talk at all about um, the future of identity and what that might look like on other platforms, like on social, for instance? Yeah, probably the bulk of the conversation was about identity. We talked a a bit about commerce at the start, but then um, Keely brought up identity. And so we got into uh, both what's going on with the third party cookie, but then also how what Apple is doing with IDFA kind of serves as a test case. Um, and ahead of the third-party cookie deprecation next year. And I'm curious, like looking at um, the social side specifically, uh, did they talk at all about like advertisers' role on um, Facebook, for instance, like following um, that platform's change that allows advertisers to control like what posts their ads appear on and things like that? Did they get into like the social um, uh, role that advertisers have? Yeah, it was interesting because um, Keely actually chalk that up to the boycott at uh, the advertiser boycott last mm. summer which i kind of had the sense that like didn't really amount to too many changes um on facebook's part um but it you know keely said that facebook announcing that i think by the end of this year advertisers will be able to kind of control which posts appear above or below their ads or, or you know where their ads run and next to which posts um, goes back to the boycott and as a result of that. Cool. Well, um, I guess I'll let you guys get into the conversation. Um, thanks, Tim. Keely Taylor and Amanda Grant, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for having us. So you both came into new roles in November of last year. <laughs> Obviously, interesting time to come into a new role with the election having wrapped up, well, in a way wrapped up, in another way, not so much. Uh, Keely, you became global head of partnerships. Amanda, you became global head of social. Keely, I'll start with you because global head of partnerships. Partnerships is one of those terms that can be pretty broad. I feel like every day I'm hearing people talking about you know partnering or referring to someone as a partner or talking about partnerships. What's the purview of the job? Sure. So in terms of the way in which we look at partnerships, we recognize that the industry is really in a period of transition. So what partnerships used to mean was a lot more kind of rate card oriented. What we're doing now, especially with digital and technology platform partners, is thinking about co-development, thinking about joint go-to-market, and really making sure that we're future fit for client needs, whether that be future of identity, advanced measurement, um, or the big shift to e-com. So those are kind of the things that are now encapsulated in what is a very ambiguous name of partnerships. Got it. And so is that companies like Google, Amazon? Yeah, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok's a big one. We just had a, an announcement around our partnership with them. And we'll get back to that because TikTok, a lot going on there. Um, Amanda, Global Head of Social, a more concrete title, but social is also one of those uh terms that is pretty broad because social has really exploded over the past 10 years for good and bad. What's been the big thing that you've been focusing on since coming into the role? Because you had been head of social for North America. 
um, before, but now you have the global purview. Yeah, and you're right. It's social is is everything under the sun. Um, but certainly, we've been focusing whether it's due to COVID behaviors or just a general trend trend that has really shifted more substantially towards the e-commerce conversation. That's a, a primary focus of of ours, and I think you'll find that being a, a similar thread and theme with the partners as well. So, Amit, I'll start there with you. What's the lens that you're looking at e-commerce within social then like are we talking about how can we get people on instagram to be buying products it's i mean it's it's everything really you think about social commerce um and how you actually break that apart and into pillars that you can advance on if you're an agency or any type of advertisers uh it can be a very complicated landscape if you are just starting off but we, of course, have a, a long history of the, the media side of things. So where do we tap into from a media activation side where we're connecting advertisers to ROI, where we're bringing the consumer to places where they can choose to convert? But social really has or, or social platforms really have introduced more options that allow the consumer to convert on site versus driving them to another destination. I think we've also expanded the definition when we talk about commerce to not always be something that is transactional, but rather a communication between an advertiser and their their customers. So that can be more around chatbots and messaging. We're even looking at how live selling through live events is becoming another opportunity when we think about all the tools that we have and, and the repository of platform and media activation to return on a commerce outcome for clients. So it's uh, it's it's everything. It's media. It's experiential. It's engagement, and then just really focusing on what the client's goals are, what their data spine looks like, so that we can evaluate really where they can fit into these opportunities. Because not everything is right sized for every advertiser. It really kind of has to be customized to the way that they're set up. And social commerce. I mean, that's a term that. I feel like social commerce was one of those year mobile things. People were talking about the promise of social commerce for a long time. And there were some things that worked, but it never felt like it really kicked in or kind of lived up to the expectations. Has that changed or are there still challenges with social commerce? Yeah, I think if you if you look or think about social commerce um, more regionalized or more market specific, you may see that there had been more hesitation in the U.S. market, which drives a lot of initial growth and piloting around these platform activations, just because that's usually a place where it started out and tested. Um, the, the comfort that users have with converting on platforms years and years ago probably wasn't there from a market maturity standpoint. But at the same time, if you look at um, regions like APAC, where there's a longer history of comfort with using digital as a means to, to purchase, I think we've seen a, a bit more growth and traction in that region that's kind of now influencing U.S. Um, and EMEA-based markets. So it's I, I, I know what you're saying when it's like, you know, in the U.S., how, how comfortable was everyone feeling about giving Facebook their credit card details four years ago? And it probably was a lower number than it is today. I just think people are becoming more and more comfortable because they're spending more and more time on their mobile devices just for a means to live their lives in a, in a post-COVID recovery world. What options exist for them now to continue to get the kind of products they want, get the experiences they want, but through a mobile or a social platform means. Yeah, because I feel like WeChat would get held out a lot as 
okay, people in China are using WeChat for everything. It's social and it's commerce all in one and was kind of looked to as in the US, eventually people are going to use Facebook or Instagram or Twitter for these kinds of things. And the same, but then it also became one of those things. People said the same thing about chatbots, and that never. I don't think that's panned out in the in the U.S. I think that's uh, can be pretty comfortable in saying that. And so then that kind of led to the question of okay, social commerce, like as much as it's established and works and is firmly rooted abroad, is there something about the U.S. where like maybe it just it won't come here? So I mean, thinking about how WeChat really is this entire ecosystem of, of everything from, from taxis to travel to, to social experiences to purchase, and that being more of an inherent behavior, um, where the Facebooks of the world have approached through different means, which is acquiring different types of apps to bridge together an experience that's connected through different apps. So that's, that's one way to go about it. But WeChat's good to mention. Um, Line is good to mention of significant relevance in Japan and Thailand and Taiwan. And then you start to look at some other local players. If you start to look at Kakao, for example, in Korea, they all have this built in to their platform. And Facebook and the other social platforms that are really launched out of um, the US are kind of coming to that from a different angle, which is how do we acquire these types of experiences or build them as opposed to that already being something that the user is is accustomed to by being at the platform. I do expect, even if there has been more hesitation in the past to share um, more private type details, um, financial details with platforms, that that is going to be a curve that becomes even more and more broad. We're going to see more and more people who are open to it just because it is more convenient in terms of now I've been at home for maybe 18 months and I can't wait to get back outside, but there's certain shopping behaviors that we do expect to stick and not to be so much as a something that happened when we were all spending a lot more time at home, more of a behavior that we now have integrated into our day-to-day. Uh, Keely, on, certainly Amazon much farther along when it comes to commerce, but even Google has done a lot with Google Shopping. They had you know Google Wallet. They've had like the payment solutions too. What's new on the commerce front or how you're dealing with those companies um, with respect to not only commerce, but then tying it into the advertiser side, the media investment side. Yeah, so I think the most interesting part of the Google discussion right now as it relates to commerce or shopping is in looking at the future of identity. So obviously Google and YouTube have a really significant logged in user base. And there are a number of different approaches that they and we are exploring to understand how we can continue to have personalized or informed creative messaging to help drive transactions and how we can as effectively as possible measure those. So I think you will continue to see that the placements themselves are kind of your bread and butter as you'd expect. Still a ton of uh, user behavior goes through Google search. Um, The product listing ads are generally a very strong performer across a number of our advertisers. It's really going to come down to how can we better inform based on cohorts or more probabilistic modeling that the dollars that we did spend were uh, stewarded as effectively as possible. So it's um, it's future state discussions, very similar to Amazon, quite honestly. You know, <laughs> Wild Gardens had the opportunity to set a little bit more of the, the course than some of the 
uh, open web, but that's really where commerce is going. The user behavior is already apparent and it's just a matter of making sure that we are continuing to be respectful to uh, people, whether or not they're consenting to be tracked in what capacities um, and making sure that the ads continue to be relevant for them. How much of a, on the identity front, how much of a mess is it right now in preparing for the death of the third party cookie next year? And then like, there's also the IDFA piece that's coming. I think Apple said this month, they're making that update. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a story in two parts. Um, I'll, I'll leave the gory details for Amanda to talk about IDFA for the social platforms who are much more mobily dependent. Um, if anything, it's giving us really good training wheels for the cookie-based changes that are going to come about with Chrome. Um, and it's useful to remember that Safari's been doing this for a lot longer with some of their ITP changes. So for better or worse, the crystal ball has been decently clear that this is the direction we're going from regulatory pressures, from um, just kind of a consolidation in terms of who is owning and controlling experiences through the lens of a browser, through the lens of an operating system. So <laughs> we take solace in that there's been a bit of a head start. So a big emphasis that we have, most specifically with those partners that I mentioned, um, that I look after is really making sure that we're helping advertisers who do have appropriate uh, first party data, so CRM, for example, that they are able to use that to the fullest extent with those platforms that have really rich insights and interest data. So um, kind of bridging the gap is a big focus of ours to get advertisers to a place where we don't know what comes after the cliff of cookies, um, but we can have some really informed bets and some proxies that we can take into the future. Got it. So Amanda, Keely teed you up there. Um, on the social front, since this is all somewhat more immediate with the IDFA changes, How's that shaking out at the moment? Like how much of an impact has that had or is are you expecting that to have in the immediate future for advertisers? So we are fielding some substantial operation changes that trickle all the way down to, to measurement outcomes. What is challenging really is that there's a set of guidance that's coming from Apple and the platforms are all interpreting that very differently as it impacts their platforms. So it's not like we have a single, you know, rules of the road for social activation moving forward. We, we're working with the platforms to understand all of their updates, how they've interpreted it. And then there are operational changes with just about every platform that has perceived a level of impact that is more in the infrastructure of how we set things up and responsible parties. And then I think everyone is, is fielding the similar questions around measurement and attribution where there's going to be limiting um, data paths and signals, how platforms are approaching attribution, modeling, where do you make up for that loss of data? And if you're a client or an advertiser that has had an expectation with a platform for a certain amount of time, how do you then look at reporting post um, impact of change, which we expect sometime in either March or April, given the updates that we've been getting from the platforms. We have teams testing out concepts and theories now a lot of it's going to be, you know, once we actually see the scale and we see it hitting them, you know, all the teams at the same time, we've done what we can to really prepare. And, you know, the platforms have been very good in helping to provide, you know, Q&As and, and trainings. But once we actually begin to see historical reporting 
measuring up to real-time performance and, and how we think about that from a measurement standpoint. How do we look at attribution modeling as a core focus of moving forward with platforms? Or do we accept a, a new standard or status quo for now what we expect out of certain platforms given the impact of changes? We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. How is Facebook interpreting it compared to, say, Snapchat? I would say that, you know, I think largely the industry would understand at this point that Facebook's perceiving the the more substantial impact from the changes. Um, and they've certainly been, you know, very vocal about that. So, you know, they're all similar platforms in the sense that we're working with pixels, we're working with SDKs, and there's been a lot of... Um, appetite from advertisers who work in the, the mid and lower funnel to use these tools and that have been free to us and, and are a part of what makes these platforms so popular. But I, I would say that Facebook is, is fielding a, a more significant impact than, than a Snapchat would. However, they still both have um, significant impact when it comes to operationally what they need to do. Right. Yeah. Because it feels like Facebook's kind of been out there screaming bloody murder about this, but that one of the uh, pushbacks against that. And I think it came up during the analyst Q and a for Facebook's most recent earnings call was, well, but what Apple's doing with IDFA is going to affect every company. So sure. Facebook's affected, but so is everyone else. And so does it, if anything, this just reinforce Facebook's position. Yeah, I, I think it's obviously they're going to have their position. Um, you know, it's their product <laughs> and, it being able to be attractive to advertisers because a product works so well in the past is, is something that they have to kind of work through. They have very strong relationships with, with all of their, their key advertisers. So we know that those conversations have already been in place, but um, at this point, I think everyone's in a similar situation that this is coming and there really isn't a workaround. You have to, to find the best way to work with these new guidelines that are coming out. Just one point, if I could add, um, I think what you're seeing also in terms of perceived impact, it, when you look at the amount of SMB advertisers that any platform has, the ability to continue to service them can be really challenged. A pixel is really straightforward. Um, implementing a pixel has been well established in the industry for something like 15 years. Of course, it changes a little bit from time to time. Um, but now the, the standard moving forward that the, each platform is wishing for advertisers to do is to do direct conversions API integration. And that just is so much more of a heavy lift, especially for a medium or small size business. So I not to take sides on this one, <laughs> it's a battle of the titans and I'll leave it at that. Um, I do expect that there will be outsized impact because they had just a much broader suite of clients today. So basically, like what that would mean is if I'm a small business owner, it just becomes a lot harder for me to figure out or to get the setup in place to determine, okay, if I put $100, $1,000 into ads on Facebook, what sales did I get out of that? Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a developer on staff, if you don't have a site dev team that already is doing all of your cart analytics, you know that might that just might be an expense that you can't take on. But you could have implemented the pixel once, kind of set it and forget it. So just the the crunch of measurement that is happening from these policy changes, um, there is an impact on smaller businesses that don't have the ability to invest in resources. And do you expect like those small businesses to 
would they just the ones who can start selling directly on Amazon? Because then, okay, if I'm within Amazon's ecosystem, then I'm all right. There are different business uh, business decisions to be made about right. selling on a marketplace versus selling direct. I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't think that there's going to be any kind of universal right fit for advertisers. Got it. Okay, and Amanda, so as you mentioned, Snapchat taking a different interpretation, or at least they haven't been. I think Evan Spiegel, even on their earnings call, kind of applauded what Apple's doing from a privacy perspective. Um, is Snapchat like less up in arms about this in part because brand advertisers is where they like, is really where they uh, butter their bread? Or like, are they also, is there also an impact there when it comes to the SMBs on Snapchat? I mean, they, they certainly have great products that facilitate the, the branding and awareness component or immersive experiences. I think Facebook has a, a longer history as well as has been a very popular place for SMBs to play um, or be able to, to modify their entire digital presence off of. So I, I think that when it comes to Facebook being a very attractive all advertiser option, you know, the full suit of services, full funnel, and there being such a large component of SMBs driving, um, you know, product utilization on the platform, that is not the same story that Snapchat would have. Not to suggest that small business isn't tapping into Snapchat, but the the ecosystem is more established um, on Facebook when it comes to to tapping into that type of product location based. Uh, it kind of acts as a digital SEO plus run your digital storefront here, even before they offered those types of options that would allow you to integrate your your backend data spine. So that's also likely something that has a bit to do with the platforms having, you know, various viewpoints. I think both platforms though have said that they also agree that user privacy is paramount. There's just different interpretations that a Facebook or even a Snapchat is taking on how that interpretation was taken by Apple and what it means to them. Keely, going back to the Google stuff, um, the open web side of it, because whatever Google ends up doing here and they like keep you know putting out different announcements or about what their cookie replacement plans are going to be or what the next year is going to look like for them. How is how do you based on what they've said so far, how is that going to impact the rest of the open web? Because like everyone else is scrambling to come up with some replacement for the cookie, but there's you know the likelihood that Google may not support that. The trade desk in that group may have unified ID, um, but if Google blocks that or kind of uses its products to prevent that from functioning, then that kind of kills it dead in the water, right? The best example that I can pull from is the patchwork of consent management frameworks that happened uh, leading into GDPR and then directly following. I... I have every reason to believe that there will be similar levels of fragmentation to begin with. Um, And ultimately, I think one of the things that advertisers, it behooves them to remember is that they're the ones that vote with their pocketbook. So if they have views about there being more choice, if they have views about there being not one universal standard, um, there are a number of different industry consortiums and trade groups Uh, that are actively seeking participation and input on what should this roadmap look like. And I think Amanda made a good point earlier that 
no one's anti-privacy. <laughs> We're just trying to figure out the right balance. Um, and so whenever there is a lot of scale behind any one solution, I think you are purposefully or inadvertently going to become tethered to what their roadmap is. And they may make business and policy decisions that are at odds with what would be in your best interest. So um, just keeping in mind that the, the rule books can change. Obviously, Chrome as a browser had a different set of rules some 18 months ago than what we're going to see 12 months from now. Um, and so just always making sure that you are aware of what's going on and have a contingency in your back pocket, whether that mean really leaning into uh, alternative solutions or conversely recognizing that maybe Google is a really significant driver of your sales. And so you want to be eyes wide open. How can you make, you make the most of the opportunity that they are presenting to you? Right. Yeah. Because I mean, to what extent are advertisers voting with their pocketbooks right now? Uh, it, <laughs> there are so many different topics, sure. um, but I will say the the best example that I can think of uh, sits under the World Federation of Advertisers and the Global Alliance for Responsible Media, most specifically about suitability and brand safety. So not quite a future of identity, but there's no reason that um, Pram couldn't be that. But the, that's one of those places where major platforms, major advertisers with global footprints and major agencies are all coming together to get to a collective place of understanding, which raises the floor for everyone. So um, I think there's also a little bit of um, competitive advantage today. If you think you have a future of identity cracked and your peer set doesn't, I would imagine once the new norm is the standard that you might start to see a little bit more of the cross-collaborative approaches as well. And on the suitability front, I mean, it feels like the biggest news recently there is Facebook. I don't remember if they said they're going to be testing or if this is going to be official, but by the end of this year, like making it an option for advertisers to control what posts in the feed an ad appears next to, which I know is something like John Montgomery at Group M has been calling for for a long time. And I know like I've and I'm sure you've had these conversations, both of you, with people at you know Facebook and Instagram of, well, brand safety is you know, an issue on YouTube because it's a pre-roll ad in the video and there's kind of that direct association between the ad and the content. But you know, people aren't making an association if they see an ad you know, before, you know, above or below a you know, controversial post. Obviously, that stance has changed. What happened on the advertiser side that would have contributed to that? Because it seems like the kind of thing where Facebook wouldn't have made this pivot if it weren't for Facebook losing or being at risk of losing ad revenue. Um, so I think that there was a wake-up call in the summer with respect to the Stop Hate for Profit boycott, um, where the the boycotters were not discerning where on the platform uh, hateful content was happening. They were just saying, if you clean all the water, then we're happy to drink from any source of water kind of thing. Um, and that brought a light onto the fact that that part of the platform historically had been much harder to measure and then to provide contextual protections. And then quite candidly, there is the, uh, the risk of the screenshot. So in some of these instances, we've gotten direct reporting that there were 11 impressions. And keeping in mind that we pay per thousand impressions, that's <laughs> a very small amount of reach. But if it's on the front of a prominent newspaper, that it's your brand next to that, you know, one of 11 people, 
it is a reputational challenge. And I think um, brands are recognizing or continuing to recognize how they've built their brands over time and how protective they need to be to continue to be able to compete against things like private label. Amanda, like in terms of the content appearing in people's feeds, both, well, and Kaylee, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too. Both Google and Facebook have you know, been in the news past few weeks about the Australia media bargaining law. Facebook also had the announcement about a month ago that it's um, testing, you know, deprioritizing political content, including political news articles and videos in people's feeds. Um, Obviously, in Australia, both Google and Facebook have done deals with publishers where they're going to pay them for the content um, in order to keep their content on their platforms. What's the significance from an advertiser perspective when it comes to having news content on these platforms? Because there's also that stance out there from that advertisers are wary about being next to the news. And so it seems like advertisers could incentivize the platforms to avoid news content because then it's implicitly more advertiser friendly, even though that seems problematic. Well, I think it, I think it's two parts. I think that advertisers and platforms and users all benefit inherently from there being credible news on the platform. And the, the reluctance from the advertiser side has been more of specific types of content um, that were coming through, perhaps through news publications. So, you know, historically, advertisers not wanting to be next to anything that had gun content that was um, that seemed to be interpreted through some type of, you know, hate speech. So there's becoming or becoming available better and better controls for clients to be contextually served. So that we're, we're not just submitting, you know, keyword blocks and we're moving or pushing down great content that, you know, does deserve to be seen and heard, but focusing on, you know, contextually serving a, an ad that makes sense in that space at that time. But when it comes to what happened in Australia um, and, you know, how there was a, it seemed like a push pull for a bit, it seems you know, very clear that the user base had a, a very big issue with news not being something that would be available to them on the platform, codifying that that is significant place where people are getting news. But also if people are now spending more time getting news in other places, you are going to decrease the opportunity to serve more ads on that platform. So it does seem to be connected in a sense that advertisers, you know, should care what users want from the platforms because when they're spending time there and that's a part of your advertising strategy, your audience size may or could decrease based upon people needing to go elsewhere to get news, credible news information. Keely, what do you see as the potential for these kinds of laws to spread and then, you know, to the U.S. and other places? And then what impact that would have on advertisers or how advertisers may play a role in that or factor into that conversation? So we're already seeing discussion in Canada to have a similar type of bill passed. Um, I think the the practical question at hand is the the platforms in question have all kinds of capital today. However, they are also all publicly traded. And so depending on how significant the outlay of cost is for uh, kind of qualified journalism to appear on their platforms, I have not known them <laughs> to be charitable. Um, so you would expect that you would start to see that creep up in the auction pricing. And so to Amanda's point, you're, you would want to hope 
that they are continuing to pull in an audience that reads that journalism or that um, professionally produced uh, journalistic or reporting content to offset what might be a higher cost of operating. Um, You see it today in the quarterly earnings reports, they talk about the cost of um, site traffic and kind of um, direct traffic costs. So you could imagine following the example set by Australia in this instance, that you might see that happen in more locations. Um, And then I I do think also there is, in this kind of post-truth world that we live in, at least sitting in the U.S., it feels that way sometimes, to define what is uh, spin versus what is mis- or disinformation becomes a very challenging line to be the arbiter of. And so I do anticipate that the platforms will eventually get to a point where the kind of top-tier gold standard Pulitzer winning kind of journalists um, that's kind of done and dusted and there are are agreements made. And then there's kind of a mid-tier of content producers where I I think they will fall um, to whatever standard the regulator has of what is news content, what is journalistic content that is um, eligible for a collective bargaining agreement. And I don't think we necessarily have that figured out yet. And I I think it looks different in different countries. And I think that there is a little bit of a slippery slope. Australia is not so slippery. There are other countries in the world that are perhaps a little bit more slippery with respect to what is um, recognized as news. Right. It's kind of a correction is not the right term, but the the inverse of the democratization of content, in this case of news and what happens you open up the everyone gets a printing press okay maybe not everyone should have a printing press well what do you do in that case also like well should everyone still have a printing it's all super thorny yes (laughs) i think we we learned that uh right when amanda and i took on our new roles (laughs) we learned that maybe not everybody needs a printing press right keely taylor amanda grant thanks both of you for coming on the podcast thank you thank you thanks for having us and thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Music.